0: WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill 99.9 Bangor and all over the world at WERU.org one groove at a time. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU
1: FM where next up we have Democracy Forum with your host Ann Luther of the League of Women
0: Voters Down East. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the second program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about the free press and a functioning democracy, We'll talk about democracy, journalism, and the state of play in American news. Can fact-based journalism survive? Can democracy survive otherwise? This program is being produced with support from the Maine Humanities Council. We won't be taking phone calls today, but we will take listener questions by email at this email address, info at weru.org with Democracy Forum in the subject line. So stand by to join the conversation. This is Anne Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum this morning. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio today is Earl Brecklin. Earl is the founding editor of the award-winning weekly newspaper, The Mount Desert Islander, and former editor of the Bar Harbor Times. Welcome, Earl.
2: Thank you, Anne. Honored to be here.
0: So happy to have you. Um, Joining us by phone is Bert Newborn. Bert is the Norman Dorsen Professor of Civil Liberties and founding legal director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. He's the author of the book Madison's Music that explores a deep reading of the First Amendment. He has a new book due out in August called When at times the mob is swayed, A Citizen's Guide to Saving the Republic, about the importance of repairing the democratic process, a recommitment to the separation of powers, and the rebirth of progressive federalism, finding the sweet spot in a constitution devoted to both autonomy and equality. We look forward to that book. Welcome, Bert. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have a special guest, Judy Woodruff, is going to join us by phone at the half hour. Um, most of you know Judy is the anchor and managing editor of the PBS NewsHour. In her award-winning career, she's covered politics and other news for more than four decades at NBC, CNN, and PBS. Um, so she'll be joining us on the phone at 1030. Meanwhile, it was another t- tough week for print journalism a couple of weeks ago when both Gannett and BuzzFeed Uh, announced deep staff cuts, laying off journalists, covering both local and national news. Gannett, viewed by some as the grim reaper of local print journalism over the last several decades, is now fending off unwanted advances from a hedge fund that many fear would be even worse. Is serious journalism being driven off the field, abandoning us all to fake news? Is this the beginning of the end, the end of the end, or yet one more disruption in the long evolution of a free press in our American democracy. So Bert, I'd like to start out by asking you to sort of ground us in the First Amendment. If you have it handy, would you read the First Amendment for us and tell us what you think it means and why it came first?
3: Oh, well, that's a delightful way to begin the morning for me. Thank you. Um, First Amendment is 45 words long. your laundry, your, your um, grocery list is probably longer and more elaborate than the First Amendment. Uh, but the text is really extraordinary if we, if we really pay attention to it. So here goes. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Um, in the history of our culture, the whole history of, of Western law, uh, I don't know enough about uh, other legal systems to say anything about it, but uh, the Western legal system that I know something about. This is a unique collection of words. No one has ever, including the French Declaration of the Rights of Man, all the... British um, Bills of Rights, all the colonial charters, all the state constitutions. Before Madison put these words together this way, no one ever did it before. And it's a remarkable achievement, because what he's done is taken six basic ideas um, uh, two ideas that deal with conscience, saying no establishment of religion and no prohibition of the free exercise of religion. So it, it frees up um, your religious conscience and then eventually, in our uh, era, your secular conscience as well. So the it starts by freeing up the conscience of a free person. And then it moves in um, perfect chronological order for the life cycle of a democratic idea. It moves from a free conscience... Um, to freedom of speech, because once you've got a free conscience, you're going to have thoughts and you're going to want to express them. So then it moves to freedom of speech. Then it moves to say, um, uh, speaking isn't enough. You need to be able to reach a mass audience if you're going to actually affect things in a democracy. So it moves from freedom of speech to freedom of the press, which is the way we reach a mass audience in a democracy. Once you've reached the mass audience... Um, it says you want to engage in collective action in, um, uh, in support of your ideas. So that's when it moves to the right of the people peaceably to assemble and in the modern era to associate. Um, and then finally, uh, once you've got your people all riled up about their ideas, uh, <laughs> then you want to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And I read that clause as guaranteeing the right to vote as well as the right to petition.
0: So this really had the... Um, the founders thinking about the way in which people organize to govern themselves, and uh, as you say, conscience, speech, speech, organizing, and action, depending on um, the freedom to express those things in a democracy and the responsiveness of a democracy exactly. to those things. Exactly. It's, it's,
3: it's the building blocks of a democracy. Um, uh, what Madison did is he put the six building blocks together uh, in a perfect chronological order, and it traces the arc Of an idea from the inner recesses of a free person's conscience to articulating the idea to someone else, to getting mass dissemination of the idea to a large audience, to organizing with that audience to put the idea into effect and then to confronting the government and demanding that it place it into, into effect. It's just what we do. If, I, if democracy is acting in an ideal way, that's just the way it functions. And it's just astonishing that in 45 words, uh, the founders were able to capture the essence of what it means to live in a democracy. And of course, the centerpiece of it all, it doesn't work. Without the centerpiece of it all, which is the press, which is the mechanism by which we move from the internal uh, aspects of our lives uh, to the external, to the to the to the political, and without the press, the whole thing doesn't work.
0: What? Did, where did the, you sometimes call the fourth estate? Where did the term the fourth estate come from? Do you know, Earl?
2: Well, certainly, when you look at the three branches of government inculcated in the Constitution. Uh, There's the executive, the legislation, legislative, and the courts, and I think the founders certainly understood that without the people being able to know what those three branches were doing or what they were up to, I think that that's uh, uh, they put the press right into that First Amendment, and therefore that uh, ensured that uh, people. In effect, it's a fourth branch of government that's actually just as necessary for the successful operation of a democracy as any of the other parts.
0: Is that what your view is also, Bert?
2: Yeah, they could have called it the fourth branch, but they were being cute. Uh, they, were, they were
3: adopting the language of uh, uh, French. Uh, the, uh, the, the uh, French. The French political system recognized three estates uh, and at the time of the French Revolution. Uh, they recognized the aristocracy, the clergy, and the merchants. Those were the three classes mm-hmm. that met in the estates general. And uh, the fourth estate was coined as the press uh, that would cover the, um, uh, and, and uh, interpret the proceedings for the people, mm-hmm. uh, and both the French and uh, um, uh, United, the United the folks on this side of the Atlantic recognized that without the press, the whole thing couldn't
0: work. Now, in in that founder's conception, um, there was you know the first, these amendments were all to protect people from government. Overbearing and uh, government overreach. So these are protecting particular rights. But was there anything in that thinking that had to do with the responsibility of citizens and the exercise of their civic duty? Is that part of this, Bert, or is that? Uh, Well, I think
3: they um, it's 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 implicit in the text uh, uh, that you don't you don't empower a people the way the First Amendment empowers. Uh, folks in this country without assuming that they're going to actually use that power. Um, there's nothing in the Constitution that forces us to be a citizen. There's nothing that forces us to, um, uh, to uh, uh, carry out the responsibilities of, of citizenship. Uh, but I think the founders were um, quite confident that if only that we could unlock uh, the best uh, attributes of our nature. If we could unlock those attributes from, from government tyranny, uh, then individuals would um, would uh, step up to the plate and and perform their functions. Mm-hmm. And and the history of this country has been the history of political activism and people, uh, generation after generation, uh, grappling with the problems of the. Uh, of the nation and using the freedom, I mean, you're right in characterizing the First Amendment as a great big umbrella that protects us from the state. The whole purpose—it's—I uh, um, know it starts by saying Congress, um, but it's much more than Congress. It isn't just Congress shall make no law. That's one of the reasons why we can't read it literally. If we read it literally, it gets too narrow because mm-hmm. you want to be protected against the president, you want to be protected against the governor, the army, the cop on the beat. Um, And so the the amendment has been read broadly to provide a shield for us all from any element of government. And so we are insulated from the ability of government to affect our religious life and to affect our political life, and in the modern era, to affect our aesthetics life as well.
0: So that's the essential underpinning, I hear you say, is that free press and free speech um, is deeply in it entwined with civic action and self-government at the most fundamental level. Now, of course, in the beginning, there was only print, right? Journalism was only print journalism. Um, help us understand a little bit, Earl, how the accelerating disruptors that have been changing the print journalism model since the end of the World War II, really, and most dramatically in the last 20 years, have changed this whole environment.
2: Well, I I think the the big part is that just there's such a broad constituency of sources for information now. And uh, I think that the First Amendment certainly applies across all those platforms because the essential activities that are being conducted are the same. However, nowadays people understand, perhaps more than any other time in our history, the power of that broad outreach to citizenry can have and have basically tried to twist it to one political persuasion or the other, which actually, uh, back during the time of the Bill of Rights and, and the colonial days, the newspapers were all partisan uh, entities. They were, the, in Maine, the Norway Advertiser Democrat and the Belfast Republican Journal. They were party journals, and, and this notion of impartial journalism kind of s- stretched in more during the 20th century. But I think that the the disruptive nature is the fact that there's no one source that people see now as as authoritative. And part of that comes from uh, not having individual ownership. When you had a small paper or a weekly paper or a daily paper, you knew who the owners were and their name was on it and you knew who to go to and they had their integrity on the line. And now it's just a big question in a cloud.
0: Hmm. What do you think, Bert? How has the way the press functions within civil society evolved since the founding, and how are modern challenges the same or different from challenges well, that I, the I, press- I
3: agree was. with her role that there's, there's been tremendous change, of course. Uh, the original idea of press freedom um, was really kind of a very, very literal. Um, the real people who were being protected at the very beginning uh, um, you know, in uh, Great Britain, um, um, with the anti-licensing laws, and in the United States, with the struggle for the free press before there was a constitution, the real people being protected in those years um, were the artisans, were the actual guys that owned the printing press. Um, uh, the printing press itself in those years was a scarce resource. Um, it took a fair amount of capital to build one and to own one, um, and they were essentially the Engine by which many, many people got their speech to a large audience. So when John Peter Zenger, who was the, uh, lar- um, one of the uh, principal printers in New York City, uh, when Zenger was put on trial for printing pamphlets and um, distributing pamphlets that had, been dis- that had been written by someone else, actually someone else anonymously, um, and he printed those pamphlets, it wasn't the author they went after. It was the printer. Uh-huh. It was the press, because the um, authorities realized that if they could strangle the press, they could strangle the uh, the, uh, the, um, the um, mass dissemination of the pamphlets. Uh, that then morphed, as Earl points out, to a series of newspapers that were deeply, deeply partisan. Boy, if you think we have a partisan press now, you should have lived through the election of 1800. Um, um, uh, where um, Adams was up for re-election. John Adams was up for re-election. And it was an intense, bitter struggle between Adams and uh, Thomas Jefferson. It was the first really contested election in the nation's history. Um, And the virulent press on both sides was just outrageous. I mean, the allegations that they made about the personal behavior of each party um, and the uh, uh, politicization of the press um, was very strong, but everybody knew it. You knew that if you bought one newspaper, you were getting this. Um, if you bought another newspaper, you were getting that. Um, and the evolution of the press as a more neutral, fact-based body um, really didn't, I think, start until the, uh, until the uh, uh, 1800s. But um, uh, the press was uh, has, has changed enormously and for the better. But we shouldn't think that somehow the fact that we have a deeply politicized aspects of the press today, I'm thinking about cable television, um, is somehow um, unique. Um, if you look back to the, to the beginning, we began with a deeply politicized mm-hmm. press.
0: Let me do a little station break and then let Earl jump in on that. So you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is the free press and a functioning democracy our guests this morning are O. Brucklin, the founding editor of the Mount Desert Islander, and Bert Newborn, the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil liter- Liberties and founding legal director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. We'll be joined by Judy Woodruff in a few minutes. If you have a question for one of our guests, email us at info at weru.org with democracy form in the subject line. Um, we were just talking about partisan press is not a new phenomenon, And Earl wanted to jump in on that so go ahead. Uh,
2: Thank you. uh, We had our own story of uh, to what extent people would go to to bring you the news here in Maine. Elijah Parrish Lovejoy back in 1837 who was set upon by a mob because of his anti-slavery views and uh, actually Colby College now awards a journalism award every year in 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 his his name. name. And uh, I think that that shows that uh, it, it was not an easy start for people uh, to, to, to try to uh, maintain that independence and to exercise that First Amendment right. And it's interesting when we have so many debates now about the Constitution, usually it centers on the Second Amendment and the ability to bear arms, uh, but which is a, a darling of the right and the First Amendment darling of the left, however, uh, The Second Amendment folks kind of forget that First Amendment, right? And if we're going to protect what's in the Second Amendment, they've got to also have that dedication to following the First as well.
0: I mean, it's interesting, though, that the idea of partisan news and antipathy towards the deliverers of news and the sort of fake news and the attacks on journalists that we're seeing today, you are both pointing out, is not new in our history at all.
2: That's that's right. And, and the other aspect is people don't know who to be mad at now because they don't know who controls the news and they don't know who controls an issue and they don't know who controls segments of the economy. So it's it's always the messenger that's going to take the brunt.
0: Well, that's interesting you bring that up. And it's you know, I hear people on both the left and the right um, reviling against what they call corporate media and i think that's to the point people don't know who is responsible for this bert do you hear what people are saying about corporate media and do you understand why they may distrust the media if they don't know who owns it and who's responsible for it
3: well um i i i want to maybe dissent a little bit on that um Uh, Corporate media has its problems if it gets to be too big and, as you say, too anonymous and too um, uh, detached from any kind of uh, uh, checking mechanism. Uh, But uh, one of the things that that I uh, read, um, um, at least in my reading of the Constitution, is that the press clause, um, by singling out the press, uh, that's the only business mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, in the 1787 Constitution and the uh, 1791 Bill of Rights, the only business that gets constitutional protection is the press. Um, Because the founders understood that um, you didn't want a government press. You didn't want a press where the the money was going to come from the very people that the reporters were going to cover and criticize. Um, And you didn't want a charitable press, because the charitable press relies on the rich person happens to be making it possible. Um, what you wanted was a market press, a press that would be able to support itself through the free marketplace um, in a way that would render itself independent. And whether we like it or not, and sometimes, believe me, I don't like it at all, but whether we like it or not, the most efficient way to organize an economic enterprise in the modern world has been through a corporation. I mean, we invented the idea of corporation to be able to assemble capital. I mean, there was no such thing when, interestingly enough, you know, when the founders wrote the Bill of Rights um, uh, in 1791, there was no such thing as the business corporation. There were a few small, uh, in order to have a corporation in those years, you had to actually pass a law granting the uh, organizers the power to assume corporate status, and they did it to build. Coal bridges or to drain swamps or something like that. But it was really an act of political patronage to be a corporation. Um, Thank uh, you. During the Jackson era, uh, era in about 1830, um, uh, the, that changed, and everybody demanded the right to create a corporation if they wanted. They didn't want the government to give it to you. People wanted the uh, ability to, um, to have a corporation, and it was one of the great successes of law. Uh, uh, During the 19th century, uh, the idea of the business corporation proliferated and in some sense is responsible for the effective um, growth of the nation into a huge uh, uh, economic enterprise. So uh, I, I don't set my face against the idea of a corporate press because I want a press. I want a corporate press that has the economic capacity To um, stand on its own and not have to ask for favors from anybody else. But uh, when you have a corporate press, uh, uh, what what has to go hand in hand with that is some um, controls on the size or some controls on the ability of hugely rich, powerful institutions to use the corporate form uh, to be able to uh, uh, create institutions that lose touch with the people. And if I have any criticism of the corporate press, something like Sinclair Broadcasting or, um, or, or aspects of the Murdoch, uh, Murdoch Empire um, that are huge and have huge influence, and, and it's almost impossible uh, to cope with them.
0: And so, I think that, that creates hostility. Yeah, let me let, let Earl jump in here on this. How, how do you feel the changing business model and the for-profit model has affected the quality of the news we get?
2: Well, in, in most cases, it hasn't improved it because the first thing that gets cut in a desire for greater profits – are reporters. They're a bunch of pesky people that ask too many questions and complain constantly. And I think that, uh, and God love them. And I think that uh, along with the Sinclair example, which is certainly reinforces people's concerns that there could be a vast right-wing conspiracy to control what people see or Just hear. Just in
0: case people don't know, tell tell us a little bit about what Sinclair is. Uh,
2: Sinclair was a corporation that would was top-down distributing editorials and news content and in, in a a desire to affect the agenda and the storyline that was out there uh, I think in corporate ownership uh, there's also a more insidious and perhaps more pervasive concern and that's that the corporate bean counters don't pay attention to what's in the editorial content and in that respect as long as the numbers are right um, they're not they don't care what's in it or they don't care what's on air and in that respect uh, you don't have that personal attention that desire to fulfill that uh, sacred responsibility inculcated in the First Amendment—that's uh, not getting done, and the public's ill-served in either respect. We have a, a
0: listener question coming by email. It's from uh, Suzanne, and she asks: Do we need a new fairness doctrine law? Would it be effective? Tell people what the fairness doctrine is. What? Oh, what a wonderful,
3: what a wonderful question. Um, I, I was going to, I was going to bring that up, and I think it's a great question. Um, Uh, We've seen a a tremendous swing um, in the United States in in the idea of uh, uh, government trying to regulate aspects of the press to assure that Earl's uh, observation about corporate ownership didn't distort the process to the point where um, um, a single powerful, broadcaster um, dominated, let's say, all the newspapers in um, uh, uh, one area and owned all the radio stations and owned the television station, so that a single group of people were controlling everything that someone saw or heard um, through the mass media. And it's one of the Great dangers of our modern uh, of our modern era. Once upon a time in the 1960s, the Federal Communications Commission had a rule that they called the fairness doctrine, which said that as a condition of getting your broadcast license, as a condition of being allowed to broadcast as a radio station or a television station, um, the stations had to provide a fair coverage of the entire political spectrum, so that they couldn't just be a single voice, um, and they had to at least make sure uh, that listeners heard the other side as well. Um, I think it functioned, and the Supreme Court upheld it in 1967. The Supreme Court upheld it uh, in a very famous case called Red Lion, um, and the first time it reached the, the, the court. Um, in the years since then, um, uh, two things, I think, have happened. One, um People have been much have gotten much more nervous about the idea of government regulation of the press at all, to the point where I think the government's been bluffed away from the table. The, the people are just afraid to let the government nose inside the tent, and, and there's something to that. And the um, uh, enormous proliferation of different. Um, 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 Cable television and now internet has made people a little less nervous about the idea of a monopoly press. And so um, while the Supreme Court has never formally struck down the Fairness Doctrine. I have no doubt that the current court would strike it down 5-4, um, and that um, um, uh, that the uh, federal the, the federal bu- bureaucrats, the Federal Communication Commission, has simply killed the idea. And in, in and in fact, it's gotten worse. They've at the same time that they killed the idea of the fairness doctrine, they also killed. Regulations that limited uh, the number of um, broadcast stations and the number of uh, um, newspapers that a single person could own in a single market area to the point where there is now virtually no protection against just having a single voice in your ear all the time telling you what you should read, telling you what you should think, and telling you what the facts are.
0: Go ahead, Earl, jump in on that.
2: Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I think that uh, the Fairness Doctrine certainly applied to the public's property, the public's airwaves. Uh, that's why it certainly didn't apply to uh, independent newspapers and, and other media of the kind. And I think that the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine will be looked at by scholars 100 years from now along with Citizens United as the the two biggest changes in our democracy that caused its disintegration and the deterioration of the level of debate and civility because it just took all the gloves off. And I I think that those two things, money being speech and uh, the fact that you don't have to show both sides of an issue, uh, have just really hurt our democracy.
0: I mean, I've seen broadcasts where we have both sides of the issue being given equal weight. And it, sometimes that just looks like a false equivalency when one of them is kind of extreme and one of them is a little not so extreme. You know, that he said, she said doesn't always balance
2: out. And par- part of that is that There are more than two sides to every issue, Uh and what happens is when you're trying to to delve into an issue and you want to get both sides, you tend to identify someone at the polls on either side of it as uh, being the most likely spokesman and often the most identifiable source because they're the easiest to find. But uh, doesn't always give the entire picture. Yeah, Yeah.
3: Uh, Earl's observation that there are more that there's almost always more than two sides to any complex issue. Is, is why the print media um, remains uh, so important to a democracy. Um, that's the media uh, where you can get underneath the surface. I mean, the mass media, the mass broadcast media uh, is very good at, at dishing out uh, facts as they break uh, in a way that you have some sense that you're always inundated in the, in the flow of the facts. Um, they're not very good. Getting underneath the surface, um, either because they're b- driven by uh, desire to get broadcast ratings, uh, or because there's an intrinsic limitation on on the uh, on the mass on the broadcast media to do it, but the print media that allows people to actually think. And read at their own pace. And and uh, um, you know you know I don't know about about you, but when I read something, uh, I catch myself stopping at the end of a sentence or two, and and musing on it for a second, and then going on. That kind of inner dialogue with yourself um, is something that can only be triggered uh, by good. Um, um, print reporting and so, it 's why keeping good print reporting like Earl's paper alive um, is the essence of making the press clause work
0: yeah so let 's talk about that I mean I, the outlets have proliferated you know you 've got twitter you 've got facebook you 've got so many different ways in which the stories can go out but are there actually more reporters or are there fewer reporters is there are there more high quality stories or fewer high quality stories Earl?
2: I think there are fewer high-quality stories. I think there are more people that fancy themselves as reporters, but there are fewer true reporters because, it, number one, it's a calling. Number two, it takes a lot of wisdom and understanding to know how to approach a story and to do it right. And and actually, being a poor reporter or a a, a one-sided journalist is the easiest thing in the world to do because it's basically a stream of consciousness for people.
0: Huh what do you do you have any evidence about, about that bird about how many you know this, the actual size of the reporter pool, whether it's growing or shrinking. Well, we I can
3: I can give you a a, a, um, a, a careful scientific survey <laughs> taken within my family. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter and my son-in-law were once print reporters, but the world is very hard. It's a harsh world out there to be print reporters, and over their careers, they both devo- both evolved one into a, a, an author. A, a, Writes books, and the other one into a uh, an in-house uh, writer for a large uh, uh, financial fund. Um, Ask them what they'd rather do. They'd rather be out there being reporters. Uh, they'd rather they'd rather be doing what they did when they when they were young. Um, but if you've got kids and a family and a tough market like this, um, uh, my sense is that there's um, a whole generation of frustrated reporters who would dearly love. Uh, to go back to the golden age, go back to the Pulitzer age of journalism in this country, um, but are finding that the market is making it hard to do.
0: How are we seeing that play out in Maine, Earl? I mean, I know that the media sort of, uh, the print media here sort of shares stories in a way that they perhaps never did before. The same reporter's story will appear in three different dailies on a share the content arrangement.
2: Well, it's interesting. We we always said for decades that one person in Maine writes all the news, and they're grossly underpaid, (laughs) and that the idea for stories circulate as well as actual stories. And as you have consolidation of ownership, um, there's that belief that content does not necessarily need to be as a high degree of originality as you've had in the past. So papers often will share content with, with other entities that they don't believe are competitors in their particular market area or uh, across platforms within larger companies. So I think that there are, are actually fewer reporters. I, I like it when I see stories from other parts of the state in the local paper, but you also have to balance that with the idea that hopefully that's not shoving aside local news and stories that aren't being told.
0: You are tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Earl Brecklin, the founding editor of the Mount Desert Islander, and Bert Newborn, the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties and founding legal director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. At this point, we're w- welcoming Judy Woodruff to our conversation. Most of you know Judy is the anchor and managing editor of the PBS NewsHour. We're delighted to have you join us today. Judy, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm sorry to be joining late. Uh, it's a little a uh, little crazy here in Washington this morning, but that's the way it is.
0: I think it's crazy in Washington every morning. Um, so you're dropping into the middle of this conversation, and I want to just give you a chance to weigh in from your own perspective without having heard any, anything that we've talked about so far. As you think about the state of journalism and the free press and democracy, what's on your mind, Judy?
1: Well, there's a there's a lot to say about that right now because um, we are in, in a state of enormous transition. I'm sure you've been discussing this uh, in terms of technology, in terms of our business model, uh, the challenges posed to the, the traditional... Um, news media, the the news media we've many of us have grown up getting a, being accustomed to newspapers, television, and so forth has been all of it's been kind of turned on its head with the uh, the rise of not just the internet but of course social media, and then you add to that the political uh, uh, controversies that are dominating so much of uh, news coverage today that have split us up i think into you know not just left and right but but uh, in in many different directions we are we are under you know we really are under a uh, um under siege in some ways i mean we are being attacked at the very highest levels of our government and many americans completely agree with that and 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 buy into the president's argument that most of the news media can't be trusted but I think there's a significant other chunk of Americans who who still see the importance of um, uh, the bulk of the news media in this country. So we are, we are in a time of a lot of turmoil and a lot of transition, and we don't really know how it's all going to come out.
0: Do you think that the imperative to generate clicks on social media, I mean, you know, as advertising has migrated from a the, you know the big national papers towards social media and Earl tells me it's not so much true at local papers which still have pretty generous advertising budgets but has the imperative to generate clicks is that eroding journalistic standards do you think Judy are social media driving the agenda uh, more towards the consumer con- controlling the agenda it certainly
1: is having a negative effect in in some ways on the on the mission of journalism which which I think, and I've always believed, should be to serve what the public needs to know, and, and and of course what the public wants to know, but also to you know to help the American people, uh, whoever our readers, our our followers, our viewers are, uh, to help them understand what's going on in the world and in their country and in their community, and to help them be better citizens. Uh, that's always been part of our mission, and I I do think that. With a con- commercial model, and that's that's on steroids <laughs> when it comes to to social media and the need to generate clicks. It's always been there. You know, newspapers have to sell advertising, television has to sell spots uh, and radio, and and with social media, it's it's clicks, it's it's ads and so forth, whenever they can. And all of that, you put it all together, and today we are we are just in a much more um uh, competitive environment the audience is is split up into you know dozens scores hundreds of different uh pieces, and that makes it you know there's just a fiercer than ever fight for followers readers viewers and and that you know that inevitably is going to affect the the news agenda and what we cover. We try not to let it happen anymore. <laughs> And in public, I have to say, in public media and PBS, we're in a you know a somewhat different position because we're not following ratings by the second uh, or the minute. But um, but it certainly is the case for most of the news media in this country.
0: I mean, we we saw a little bit of an example of this maybe with the Covington, Kentucky story that you know played out a couple of weeks ago when sort of the the online social media agenda basically required the mainstream media to follow that story even though they might not have had any actual reporting on it i mean is 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 the social media sort of dragging mainstream media into a fake news agenda do you think
1: well i think that you know that had so very much i think to do with um with where our politics are right now and <clears throat> excuse me and where the American people uh, how the American people are divided along uh, pretty distinct lines these days in terms of talking about race in terms of talking about um, uh, what's you know politically correct and I think there was a strong incentive when those when that those first pictures emerged of the the young man from the high school from Kentucky, uh, standing in front of the, the Native American leader, um, there was a you know you're right that went viral. Everybody reacted, and there was just a, an instantaneous reaction and an interpretation that didn't take the larger picture into consideration. And absolutely, I think what happened was social media made a judgment. Uh, most of social media did. There was some pushback. And then mainstream media, you know, we had, I mean, social media has become a story. Yeah. We, you know, we can't ignore what, you know, what many, many people are talking about. But it's our job as we cover it to to look at what's real and what isn't real. Um, and, you know, and not just to take at face value what everybody's reacting
2: to.
0: Earl, do you want to just comment on that briefly?
2: Well, well, I, I, I do. I think there are two great takeaways from that. One from the media about uh, rushing to judgment, but also the need for citizens to be savvy news consumers. If you think about it, we've all been a victim to that look, to that stare, to that, that, that uh, gaze of contempt. And that played to our own emotions and our own preconceived notions, and the people that believed it and the people that wanted to believe it. Uh, we need to ask ourselves what am I really seeing here, and I need to know more.
0: do you want to comment, Bert? responsibility well, I just of the citizens to say that, in as this?
3: usual Judy hit it right on the head when she talked about what 's real and I think one of the tremendous crises that we 're living through now. Uh, is the crisis of whether the very idea of objective truth is going to survive. I mean, one of the things that the press has done for us in this country for generation after generation um, is to report accurate facts uh, and to allow the uh, population, um, based upon those accurate facts, to be able to make judgments about what they wanted their politics to look like. Um, we're in an era in which the idea of objective facts is under assault. I mean, it's under assault in several ways. Um, um, the president and, you know, segments of... Uh, Washington community, um, and want to do nothing else but uh, denigrate any kind of academic expert, any kind of uh, person who says, oh, there's uh, global warming or a problem about something else. That's immediately met with a derision and with a set of counterfacts that may or may not be true, but which individuals find it very difficult to uh, penetrate. And, and similarly, with, um, with politics itself, though, uh, with, with the press itself the president 's campaign to essentially eliminate respect and um, uh, uh, the, uh, for the integrity of the mainstream press is part of a general assault on the idea that there's, there can be anything that we can call objectively true and objectively false. Everything is supposed to be grist through this great big populist jury. That decides what's true and what's not. That decides whether there's a crisis on the border or whether it is, there isn't a crisis on the border. Um, and I think one of the great challenges for American journalism is to hold that line and continue to put, put you know, put reporters' heads down and just go forward and. Print
0: the i know. want to take that back to judy in a minute i'm just going to do a quick station break here you're tuned to the democracy forum on wru this is ann luther from the league of women voters of maine our guests this morning are judy woodruff the anchor and managing editor of the pbs Newshour, earl brocklin the founding editor of the mount desert islander and Burt Newborn, the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties and founding legal director at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. Our topic today is the free press and a functioning democracy. If you have a question for one of our guests, you can email us at info at weru.org with Democracy Forum in the subject line. I think, um, you know, 40 minutes in, we've gotten to the nub of the matter, Judy. Objective truth is objective truth under assault, and what is our responsibility as citizens and as institutions to stand up for that
1: well i think it's essential that we make the fight i can't tell you uh how how much the role of journalists has uh, has evolved just in the last few years because we are because of what we've just been discussing there there are now challenges being made to to what what used to be pretty widely accepted um Statistics and information, whether it was from the government or from other reliable, normally reliable sources, now we have now we're being called on, uh, you know, in a moment's notice, instantaneously, to assess either what the president said or what someone in the uh, administration said, or could be another public official. But um, it's become part of our our mandate. We have to do it. It's essential. Um, the minute we let down our guard and we just you know we stop seeing the need to verify information and the need to um uh, confirm that somebody's statement is factual, then I think we've lost you know we've lost so much of what our what our mission is we you know i I'm reluctant to say we're going we're gonna find ground truth on on any one of these things I think we're in a constant Um, uh, we're on a constant path to try to reach truth, but, and at the very least, what we can do along the way is, is try to, you know, to find accuracy. How do we confirm what we know right now? Because otherwise we don't, we don't, you know, we've, we've lost our, we don't have a compass. Our compass is, is what's real and what's, what can be borne out with by facts and if if we stop that search, if for whatever reason, either because of lack of resources or because of political intimidation or whatever reason, then um, it's a it's a it's a dark day for American journalism and American democracy.
0: Earl, really, you want to comment on that?
2: i agree I agree wholeheartedly uh, both the fir- the First Amendment, freedom of the press. All of those things are going to be lost incrementally and gradually. There's never going to be a full frontal assault on the First Amendment. And that's what we have to guard again as journalists. One of the most frightening things I saw recently on, on a television news report was a sign behind the president that said, Finish the Wall. And it's, uh, it's just new thinking. It's constant. And uh, thanks to people like Judy and, and, uh, and her organization – You just have to keep saying no, no, no. And both the readers and news organizations, they're like on a carousel and it's spinning. Nobody knows when it's going to stop. Nobody knows where the gold ring is. But we just can't relent until people finally come around to say, who is telling me the truth? And we just have to have our faith in our citizens and in our democracy that ultimately people will want the truth and that they'll know where to find it.
0: Well, we've got a couple questions here from listeners that I'll kind of combine into one that have to do with what's the responsibility of citizens and how can citizens step up be more discriminating news consumers and differentiate um the fact from propaganda in this environment Judy. Would you like to comment on the role of citizens here?
1: Well, I'll be the I'll be the first to say it's it's a lot harder to be an informed citizen today. Than it's ever been, which is kind of ironic because on the one we have, we have all these sources of information. We can go straight to the original source. We can read Supreme Court opinions uh, on our handheld smartphone or whatever device we're using. Um, We can go to the census statistics. We can, um, you know, find information from all over the place but at the very same time we are being bombarded with opinion and in some cases invective and and just fake information that muddies the waters and makes it harder than ever to you know to to you know to stay uh, grounded in in what's real what we were talking about a moment ago so it's harder i mean if it's hard enough for journalists i can't even imagine how hard it is for ordinary citizens who go about their lives, you know, know, they have a job, they have family, they have other things to do, to then have to figure out, okay, do I believe this or do I believe that? Um, And I think, you know, we all want to, you know, we'd like to say, well, if you get a good education and you, you know, the source looks credible, somebody you've heard of before, that should be reliable. And that's true, that should be. But we know now information is coming from a lot of different sources. There are new, new journalistic organizations and
0: People are gonna to have to stay on their toes
1: and it's I don't it's I don't minimize the difficulty.
0: I mean and I, I've heard and read some studies that readers sometimes don't clearly differentiate between news reporting, news analysis, and opinion, and that being able to tell the difference between reporting and opinion seems so essential, but it may be a fundamental skill that news consumers don't actually have. Is there a role for public education in helping Develop critical thinkers and good news consumers. Do you think, Judy? I know you're almost you're gonna have to leave in a minute, so I want to give you the last word here.
1: Oh, thank you, and I am sorry I, I have to leave. We we, you know, I think there's definitely a role for um, yeah, for education in that. Um, but I, again, I go back to so many Americans, their lives are full; they don't have time to. Um, you know, to be as read in and as informed as you know those of us who spend our lives doing this do, and so I don't know what the solution there is. I mean, it. it I think the it, it means that we in the media have an even bigger responsibility to make sure that everything we do is, you know, is credible, has been fact checked, and so forth. But um, but we, you know, the public plays a role, and I think the educational system plays a role. I mean, as you know, they're they're working in, I guess, in in a number of public school systems around the country to work with children as as young as as elementary school to teach them how to tell the difference between information that they can trust and believe to be accurate and information that isn't. But that's a huge undertaking, I mean, educating people about information. And yet it's becoming more and more essential, uh, more and more essential.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Judy. We'll um, let you go now. I know 1050 was your deadline, and here we are, but thank you for jumping on the phone with us this morning. We really appreciate it.
1: Uh, well, I'm so sorry I have to leave and that I joined late, but I really appreciate being part of the conversation with Earl and Norm, and uh, I just am so glad uh, the League of Women Voters and uh, is, is uh, sponsoring this kind of conversation. It's so terribly important. Thank you all very much.
0: Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. So back to um, Norm, back to Norm, back to Earl and Bert. Um, yeah, you know, I
3: could do worse <laughs> than being called Norman Dorsen. He was, he was my great idol, as is, as is Judy. So.
0: <laughs> well, uh, but, you know, the, the, we're, we're sort of working our way around to this role of citizens and the investment that citizens have to make. I mean, if the institution that we call the Fourth Fourth Estate is under attack and if we need it to have a functioning democracy – It's sort of like citizens called to arms here. What are citizens supposed to do here? Go ahead, Earl first, and then Bert.
2: Well, I I think what happens is that people are bombarded with so many opinions and so many sources of information that the tendency is going to be to just flee that situation and just walk away from it all. And that's the worst possible outcome. And I think that... uh, uh, you mentioned certainly there's a public education component to that because that's a, a huge part of how people will function in society and live, and it's not a conversation people are having in academic settings now. We had a Katie Senior College class that's always been well-subscribed about how to be a savvy news consumer and how to do that. And uh, I think uh, that you're on the right track.
0: Yeah, what do you have to say about this? All well,
2: right? I, I have an, uh, um, an optimistic take on this, which Please. Um, um it, it, I
3: think it's going to be analogous to the way Americans learned how to deal with advertising. When mass advertising began in the 1930s, uh, there was a real fear that um, what, the, what these very sophisticated um, um, uh, folks were going to do was manipulate people in ways that would um, be detrimental. And, um, and, for, and it often happens, and for a while it's really, uh, it was very dangerous. But I think Americans learned to be cynical about advertising, to read it corrosively, to let some of um, um, the more ridiculous statements just run over them, uh, and to use the advertising to take the facts that they needed to be able to make efficient market choices. Um, And I'm confident that Americans are capable of doing the same thing with um, a rash of political um, uh, statements that are coming out now. We're going to become educated consumers, not just of advertising, but educated consumers of opinion and fact. Um, And we're going to be able to, you know, as a free people, we're going to rise to the challenge, and we're going to be able to um, separate the wheat from the chaff, um, use the stuff that's good, and throw away the stuff that's not. Um, If we can't, if we're incapable of making that jump, then I'm not sure we're capable of saving our democracy. It's that important. Um, But generations of americans have risen to the um, um risen to uh, de- deal with crisis after crisis that we've faced i mean we shouldn't think that living in american democracy has been an easy thing every generation has had to meet an existential crisis this one is ours and i'm convinced that we'll meet it
0: i want to talk for a minute about the money we're you know come running out of time but you know the The mainstream media has a couple of models. You know, the New York Times is a corporation. The Washington Post has Jeff Bezos. Um, Sinclair Media is another kind of a corporation, a big blind conglomerate. Um, The Guardian has gone to a sort of pay-as-you-go model that's completely subscriber-based. The Conversation and others like it are nonprofit news. You know, the proliferation of these business models is kind of a challenge all by itself, Earl, where do news consumers fit into the business model?
2: Well, I think that uh, a couple of years ago, the New York Times actually flipped its its economic model and it, it started to derive more revenue from subscriptions and subscribers than they did from advertisers. And I think it's it's going to take people – paying for the news that they value uh, t- to make it all work if the advertising model kind of starts to fade. And uh, I think keeping a price point that people see as valuable, don't make an online subscription the same cost as getting the newspaper delivered to your house every day. I think uh, that uh, people are going to have to step up and say, this is news I'm willing to pay for. It's, it's great to get it all for free online, which is just sort of an Internet uh, uh, paradigm that was established, but uh you buy the paper on the newsstand uh you 're going to have to pay for your news if you want quality
0: what do you say
3: well
2: that 's what I say too. You get what you pay for
3: um the 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 truth is that uh, um being a citizen in, democ- uh, in a democracy is never a free ride. Um, you, you, know, people, you know, benevolent people don't just drop down and give us what we need. Uh, it's, it's the duty of a citizen to, uh, in a democracy to be an active force and one of the active forces that a citizen must do, not just vote, uh, but the citizen has to be sophisticated in gaining information. And, and uh, if, if the citizens won't preserve a free press, um, there's no way that the free press can preserve itself. Uh, it is a, in a symbiotic relationship with with the citizens. And uh, as I say, I'm quite confident that we're going to come out of this um, in a uh, uh, in a positive way.
0: We are running out of time this morning, but I want to give you each just you know 30 or 40 seconds to throw some parting comments on the table. Go ahead, Earl. Your last thoughts.
2: I think another thing that erodes faith in media and the, and the free press is. Uh, a lack of respect when papers don't get out on deadline or they print first but don't have facts. I think that's a problem. The National Enquirer, the whole case with uh, the uh, Jeff Bezos and, and those types of things, people go, well, that's the media and, and I don't have any respect for those. Lazy stories, that creates disrespect. And finally, copy editors, make it clear and make it English.
0: Thank you, Earl. What about you, Bert, last well, time i think
3: just a uh, minute i think that i think that uh, um, an educated consumer is crucial uh, to the survival of the free press but it's not enough i think we also have to think about reforming the democracy itself uh, we are a country in which not only are we worried about educated consumers, but where we just don't vote. Half the country doesn't vote. And if half the country doesn't vote, then the democracy process in the First Amendment is in constant jeopardy. So we have to ask ourselves, why is that so? Why is the most successful democracy on Earth unable to get more than half of its population to
0: vote? Thank you, Bert. We're out of time this morning, and thank you to our guest, Judy Woodruff. Anchor and Managing Editor of the PBS NewsHour, Earl Brecklin, the Founding Editor of the Mount Desert Islander, and Bert Newborn, the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties and Founding Legal Director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. You've been listening this morning to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. Um, we're big. Be- uh, on the air next month, March 15th, when our topic will be probably something about the Electoral College. We'll see you here then.
2: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Camden International.